Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Hello, listeners. Thanks for coming to listen today. I'm really excited to welcome Chris Salazar, who is Vice President of Commercial Marketing at Fortive. So we'll learn more about that. And then he's held some really good positions before. He's been Director of Worldwide Marketing at Netgear. Um, he's been at Hitachi Data Systems and VMware. Um, so he's, a, he's an interesting guy. Um, and he's so welcome. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thank you, Wendy. I'm more than happy to be here and excited about talking to you today. So before we jump into the work stuff, I know that you're a huge foodie and wine person. Yes. And yes. so I want to know what your favorite wine is and what food would you pair with that? Ah, so good question. Yeah, so I got to say I probably work um, for the sole purpose of uh, eating and uh, uh, drinking wine. Um, so I'm privileged to be pretty close to wine country here in, uh, in Napa. So I live in San Jose, which is near San Francisco. Um, and then also basically 10 to 15 miles, any direction is wine country. Uh, so we're lucky. My favorite. So I would say it's a tie between Pinot Noir and Cab Franc. Um, I love those two, uh, and um, absolutely, if, if any winery that I come across around the world or in the U.S. has any of those, I'm all in for, for those two. Um, and I like pairing it with a nice, uh, juicy steak. Um, New York steak, filet mignon, I mean, can't go wrong. Um, second is probably pasta. So if I find a pasta that has any kind of steak in it, uh, there we go. That's heaven. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, you know what? I lived out in Walnut, uh, Walnut Creek in California in the west, or, I mean the East Bay side of San Francisco. Did lots of trips up to Napa and Sonoma and explored a lot of wines. Really loved it. You really get to know your wines out there. But I've never heard of a Cab Franc. Tell yeah, me it's about a, that. It's a, yeah, it's a type of varietal and it's, um, yeah, Cabernet Franc. And um, it's a... Uh, you know, the origins are, you know, um, around the world and, you know, I've traveled around the world for work and for, for pleasure. And, and even throughout uh, central California, there's a lot of Cap Franc uh, around. There's actually a winery for anybody who's local in Saratoga, California called Savannah Chanel. They serve a really great um, Cabernet Franc. And uh, it's, um, it's, I would say it's medium body, red wine, and uh, it pairs well with just about anything. Um, but it's not quite an appetizer wine. It's something that you want to jump into midway through your wine, uh, through your dinner. And how do you spell the the winery that you were just talking about in Saratoga? I'll go look for the wine. <laughs> yeah, so Savannah Chanel. So it's S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. And then Chanel has two N's. Um, and so they've been around. So Chanel, C-H-A-N-N-E-L. Um, they've been around for quite some time. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they, they specialize in Pinot Noir. They have a Cab Franc as well, and then a Montmartre, which is their, uh, their high-end, top-end. So absolutely delicious. All right. Now I've got a new wine to, to try. So I'm thrilled about that. Thank you. And steak is always good. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So let's jump into business now. You have done all sorts of global marketing. Why don't you start out with the role that you have now? and, uh, you know, tie it into to what you're doing in the global area. Yeah, sounds good. So I'm actually new to Fortive. Uh, I'm in my second month, uh, finishing up my second month. Um, and my role is worldwide commercial marketing, um, which includes um, some of the uh, sales enablement and the lead gen, demand gen areas of marketing, um, as well as our brand, um, web marketing, digital experience, and uh, we also have an e-commerce and a uh, software um, SaaS uh, customer offering as well. Um, so Fortum is interesting in that uh, there are several different operating companies. And I, um, I'm, in, I'm leading um, an operating company called Fluke House Solutions. 
which is three brands. That's part of uh, the whole organization. It's uh, um, Fluke Biomedical, Raysafe, and Landauer. And specifically, where we're focused in is on uh, providing medical devices and services uh, for um, hospitals and um, uh, patients around the world um, around uh, dissymmetry and, and uh, radiation um, and around uh, uh, different folks maybe facing cancer. And so there's a variety of different uh, uh, products and, and solutions around that. Um, and so I'm excited about the opportunity to create some awareness of all of our software and, and products that really help patients around the world. Um, and um, uh, along that, it's, it's uh, continuing to get, get the word out and figure out how can we continue to, especially during this remote time, um, bring these products to life. And now we're having to replace in-person contact, which is exactly what we built the business off of uh, pre-COVID. And during COVID, that's all changed. It's digital now. Digital transformation is real and it's here. So um, I'm excited about being able to bring my expertise um, from the past uh, 12, 15 years or so over here to, to help the world. Good for you. That's fantastic. So you come in and it used to be face to face and you've got all this digital expertise. Where do you start? So, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, so I'm a strong believer of not, you know, looking to boil the ocean right away. And so really we start with what are our core competencies as a, as a company um, and as an organization, where do we do well? Um, and, you know, within that, it's, it's our relationships that we've built with various hospitals, uh, with our partners around the world and our existing customers. And we double down on those relationships. Um, and, you know, during this uh, COVID time, digital, we, we, we use that as our, as our catalyst and we continue to build those relationships. So, in fact, now we're able to talk to our customers directly more often than, than we, we could ever before when it was face to face. And uh, we're able to be more efficient as well. Um, so that's the starting point is continue to use that, those relationships around the world. Um, and I would say people, um, our, our own organization um, are our best assets. And then I'm a strong believer in building our teams and continuing to uh, innovate internally because that brings innovation to their customers um, out, um, out in the world. And so um, alignment is key. And so that's what I've been focused on um, is getting this alignment of people and process uh, first and ensuring that we are um, marching to the same order here in the US, here in California, in Washington, which is where our headquarter is, Chicago, um, second headquarter, and then all around the world. Um, and in fact, uh, one of our key team members in field marketing is now relocating to Sweden, which is where um, one of our big headquarters is for, for Landauer. And she's now gonna continue to run our EMEA field marketing and APAC, um, but really entrench ourselves into the region. Okay, so you mentioned Sweden, you mentioned worldwide. Where else are you operating? Um, so we're in uh, 20 plus uh, uh, countries and regions around the world. Um, uh, I would say, you know, Germany, UK, Italy, France, uh, and EMEA, key regions, plus, plus many more. Um, we have a huge presence in China as well. Um, and as we look at uh, um, India um, and Japan, um, definitely APAC is a, is a key area for us as well. So um, definitely full entrenched and um, we're, doing, we're, doing, uh, we're doing well, but we're gonna continue to transform digitally and uh, get us to where we need to go. And that's and you were brought in to, to lead up the digital? Exactly, our, our full marketing strategy and commercial marketing strategy, which uh, digital is an aspect of that, but absolutely, um, I would say Fortive as a parent company the key thing for us this year is digital transformation. And so um, I've been uh, brought in to specifically help spearhead all those efforts and uh, to see where we can get to. Okay, so you figure out your core competencies and you look at your people and your assets and you're aligning all the processes in. And then you have to think about all the stuff that you said you're doing is sales enablement, lead generation, brand digital, e-commerce. What's the second step then if you're going to launch all those things? Yeah, so the second step there is really looking at our benchmarking um, and setting KPIs um, and setting some benchmarks for us to, to really look at when we're in green, what does that mean? Uh, when we're in red, what do we do? Um, and so we're huge here on what we call Fortive 
business solutions. And these are tools and processes that enable us to continue double downing on where we're excelling. But most importantly, though, um, when we are not hitting the mark with regards to lead generation um, or our digital uh, experience, um, and when we're in those reds, those are that's a key time for us to innovate. Um, and if you look at the, the historic of some of the biggest names and brands in the world, um, Apple, um, Google, they really found success and were even kind of created um, during some of the uh, uh, you know, most difficult times in the world in the economy. Um, and so we've built process around those benchmarks. And so we track our benchmarks and our KPIs weekly. And whenever we start um, to uh, kind of trend yellow, and are in red, we start up a problem solving effort. And it's a full kind of workshop. It's a full day with the key stakeholders and we look at what's core. Um, and so that's why benchmarking and KPIs are that next step because you gotta know where you start, you gotta know where you gotta uh, grow to, and you gotta know when you're achieving success and when you can repurpose the success and um, the, the profits into continue to grow. And what are some of the KPIs that you track? So we look, um, so I would say from a demand generation perspective, we look at our marketing funnel and um, how many uh, leads are we bringing in? Um, but most importantly, how many of those are marketing qualified leads or highly qualified leads? Um, and that's important because our sales teams are busier you know, than ever because they're, they're managing all of these relationships. And with digital, as I mentioned, we're interacting with our customers and partners more and more. But that means, um, you know, our sales teams now have 2x, 3x the amount of meetings. So our ability to, to score our leads, um, to have them highly qualified, nurture them, and to keep them hot and ready. Uh, and as we give them to our, uh, to our sales teams to then act on and then to follow up on. Um, so that's a key uh, KPI as we're looking um, through there. Um, but with this digital explosion, uh, there are a whole uh, set of digital KPIs that we need to look at when we look at our organic presence or organic search, um, sorry, SEO. So that's getting down into the weeds, but this is now has been, you know, before is maybe a level two or level three KPI that uh, wasn't always kind of umbrellaed up to the executive team. Now this is front and center looking at how many people are searching for um, either our brand or how are we competing in the market of our software and our service offering? And what are we doing to grow? Um, because this is really our own property. Our brand is one of our biggest assets, people and our brand, two of our key assets. And um, we really need to ensure that people are finding us uh, online um, around the world. Um, here in the US, it's, it's uh, Google. If you uh, go to um, you know, uh, transition over to China and to some other areas, Google is some, sometimes banned from other countries and regions. So we have to adapt our strategy and uh, appeal to the market wherever they are in the world. Can you take me through your, your buyer's journey? Yeah, definitely. So we have um, a wide range of, of products and um, different customer personas, but you know, let's tackle the technical uh, persona for somebody who's looking for a product. And um, let's say they're not a customer with us. So, um, you know, they, uh, there's a, there's a great deal of research that goes into some of our products and, you know, we're dealing with, uh, providing software and services to prevent or to help hospitals, um, uh, track, uh, radiation for cancer patients. So you would imagine this is key. Every percentage, um, is a life or death decision. Um, and so there's a, a great deal of amount of research that our customers first start off with. And our biggest um, uh, kind of a, you know, asset that is looked at constantly by our customers in the, um, in the pre-sales phase is, is really video. Um, content is king and video is the ultimate king. Um, I know Elon Musk uh, mentioned this. Uh, um, I was uh, on a Clubhouse app. That's a new audio uh, chat app. <laughs> Love Clubhouse. <laughs> yes, um, it's, it's been great. Um, and uh, he mentioned, oh, content is king. But if content is king, video, um, or if a picture tells, tells a thousand words, video tells a million words. And so, you know, video content we've uh, really looked at in terms of webinars, um, animation videos. So, you know, we're not able to go out to our customers and say, hey, here's give them a demo, a real life demo. So we need to create real life simulations um, and uh, uh, recreate an environment, a 3D environment per, per se. 
and show our customers, hey, here's how the installation process works, but more importantly, here's how we will um, help you um, and empower you uh, for your own business. And that's actually a tagline. We, um, uh, we are, our goal is to empower the everyday hero. And I absolutely love that. And that's one of the reasons why I, I signed on to, to work with Porta. Um, so, yep, go ahead, sorry. So that's your technical persona. So who in the hospital would that be? Um, it's a wide range. So if we look at physicists, um, they're one of our key target markets for, for one of our big brands. Um, and they're looking at uh, every aspect um, of, our, of our tools and measurements. Um, if you look at uh, actual um, uh, physical care, they're, they're no doubt uh, looking here. Um, and, um, you know, looking at some of the somewhat of the implementation team at hospitals, it changes depending on if they're a big or, or a smaller office. Uh, um, but um, there's an implementation cost as well to stripping out existing software and, and products and inputting new. And so there's that whole piece of, OK, how much investment are we putting into? So there's a financial aspect of that as well. Um, but physicists uh, are, you know, highly technical. Um, and they look for us to have the right amount of data um, and uh, to show what's our benefit. Okay. So the physicist comes in and they're doing research and they want to watch the webinars and any automation and videos that you can see because they're really looking for in-depth information on how it's going to work and how it's be better. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So that's and that's where, yeah. Go ahead. And that's for our big products. Uh, so we have some higher priced uh, products, but you know, I mentioned e-commerce and, and I would say pre-COVID, it was probably unheard of for our, our target uh, personas to buy directly from us, to add a product to cart and check out and have the product shipped to them. And uh, these are for some of our lower cost solutions, mainly for our customers who already have some instance of our solution in their hospital and they can continue to add on or upgrade. So now we're looking, you know, some of our products, um, are now taking a, a consumer approach when it comes to the product ID um, and how the product looks and um, the size of it and how it's going to be placed, which is something we, uh, you know, as a, as a, as an organization, we never looked at. Um, but uh, now it's, um, you know, the product ID and the industrial design is taking, um, you know, uh, we're investing in uh, greatly. Okay. So go back to the buyer's journey. So um, you've got your technical persona that does all the research and video is now king. Um, and then what happens after they research it? Yeah, so after they research, we work with our either channel partners um, or our sales team to engage with the, with the customers um, and to provide some real life demos. Um, so we have some simulation demos on our side where we can simulate different environments and needs. So our sales team takes it on from there um, and they continue to build the relationships there, um, connect, um, these potential customers with other partners or other customers uh, to, to gain a little bit more knowledge of implementation or testimonial. Um, ultimately, they, they make a decision. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, we have some pretty strong brand recognition and um, success. And so, you know, our success rate is, is quite, quite good. But we continue to nurture that relationship either way. Now, how has that changed? You said that pre-COVID, it was a lot of in-person. And you're saying that it's gotten more technology. So talk to me about how that's changed and how your salespeople have adapted. Yeah, for sure. So offline and digital communications have, have become ever important. Um, not just email, though. Uh, looking at uh, chat. So we've implemented a, a live chat service that oh, is supported by both marketing and sales um, and support. And so this is a great way for us to have quick conversations with our, with our customers as they're in pre-sales or as they're a customer with us. Um, and, um, and also we continue to have kind of some customer programs to, to um, once you're a customer or in that funnel, um, you get access to other pieces of information, somewhat gated content that are in the form of written infographics or um, actual video content that then we can you know, continue to help educate um, but looking at, uh, there's been a, a more focus and more pressure on our CRM, so our customer relationship management tool, that um, wasn't a, a huge investment uh, focus area for, for, uh, for our organization pre-COVID. But now it's powering and it's the central piece of every touch point with our customers. Um, and that's uh, important because we need to know 
uh, you know, if, if I mark, if I send you something, Wendy, and, and you don't open it and it doesn't pique your interest, I need to know that because if I continue to send that to you, you're going to be like, ah, you're wasting my time, Chris. Um, but if you do open content and you engage with it and you love it, and this is adding value and enabling you to save lives around the world, I got to send you more of that, right? And not waste your time because your, your time could be better used elsewhere. So our CRM key. Yeah. I'm curious, which CRM are you using? Um, we use Microsoft Aliqua. Um, oh. and, and so it's, uh, I would say it's been around a while. Um, but, uh, it's, um, there are a few other tools and, and CRMs that I've used in the past. I've used Salesforce marketing cloud Marketo. Um, and there's also, you know, uh, some other boutique, uh, CRMs too. And that's where, uh, this year we're really going to look at what our strategy is because although I love the big brands, um, and, uh, Salesforce and Aliqua and Microsoft dynamics, they have this, uh, um, you know, yeah, the big brand behind you, not going to go away. They're strong. They're there. Some of the boutique offerings out there, by gosh, their, their features and their AI integrations are amazing. So they allow you to connect with your customers in real time. So right time and real time marketing, which is right. uh, where we got to get to. Um, so we're going to evaluate everything and this is going to be a, a fun journey for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. I love how you're taking it all on. Yeah. We use HubSpot as a CRM and I really love it. We've become a partner firm just because of, you know, for the right size company, it works really great. Yeah. And if you're going to use it. Yeah. Okay. So you're responsible for creating a ton of content um, because you've got to continually have highly technical content to connect with your people. Okay. So, how do you go about creating your content? Yeah, so great question. And um, I'd say that the starting point, and actually we were just working on this this morning. Yeah, and we, um, we really do a stock take of what our current inventory is and what we're planning and that's in the, in the roadmap, in the pipeline. And uh, we started off with a content calendar. So really a programming guide for um, all of our customers. And because we have so many, we have three different brands, different uh, customer personas, we're starting to organize our thoughts around um, what are each of the personas and what are their steps in the buyer's journey and what content do we have to fill those spots in terms of a programming guide. And, you know, I worked with a colleague at uh, Netgear, previous company, his name was Eric Moser, and he had mentioned something that was interesting. He's like, you know, why don't we create content guides like a TV guide back in the day? Um, you know, or TV guide you might have digitally on your, you know, whatever you subscribe to today. It says, hey, here's what's upcoming. You want to save it? You know, a DVR type piece. I'm like, yes, absolutely. As digital is exploding and it's transforming all industries, we, uh, you know, the, the, the roadmap and somewhat of the, the blueprint is being set by Amazon, by Comcast, by, you know, some of the big companies out there, uh, subscription companies. Let's act in the same way. Sure, our content is widely different and it's, it's B2B, but we can have a programming guide for our customers um, to say, hey, tune in every Friday, every Monday. Here's going to be a content expert talking about XYZ. It's a technical talk. Maybe Friday is, is a more um, drop-in office hours. I don't know. But we're, we're starting to organize our content around here because that will let us know what our gaps are. Um, and also, we can look back and say, this was successful. And this was not, um, and it's going to range depending on the, the, the buyer journey and the persona. Um, but it enables us to get that stock take, look back, what was successful, double down, what wasn't do the PSR, figure out how we can enhance. What platform are, gonna, are you going to use for them to drop in? Um, so uh, that's something that we're currently um, investigating. Um, but internally we we've uh, did a pilot, we did a POC, just to see internally how it works. And um, we actually use something called Asana, A-S-A-N-A. -A. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're a competitor to monday.com. Typically this has been used for more of an internal workflow process, um, but there is an ability for us to open this up and to have, some, have it so it won't be public. Um, and especially for customers, if they have a login to our partner portal, customer portal, they can see this and we can embed that. Um, so we're looking at tools um, on, on a way to bring this all together um, into a, a customer light. But internally though, to track it, to track KPIs, we use Excel, nothing fancy. Um, and, uh, we have a pretty robust Excel. Um, you know, I mentioned we have the FBS, the Fortive business solution. We actually have a whole organization within Fortive to work on creating tools 
that are mostly based off Excel, but they're using macros to the full extent and they're amazing. Uh, if you if I sent it to you, you wouldn't even be able to tell that it was an Excel sheet just by looking at it because they're that great in terms of visual uh, visualizing your data um, and looking at these pieces. So we, we rely heavily on that. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. And the, the whole TV guide now has me interested because I love that way of looking at it. So people, you know, you get live feedback and KPIs to tell you what to create and it's instant on did that topic capture people how do you handle time zones with that yeah so it's a great question and that's where our field marketing team and our, and our close interaction with them uh, comes into play so it's all about collaboration and communication with our regional teams um, and our field marketing and, um, you know, we have to uh, be cognizant of time zones and we have to have uh, content experts available um, in all of the key areas to speak and, and to be able to um, be there for our customers. So it definitely is not a U.S. centric, you know, driven. It's, you know, we have um, strategies uh, and this one, per, uh, for example, is a global feel. So every aspect of it, we're thinking about key regions in EMEA, key region in APAC. Um, but it all comes down to the content experts and you have to have that org organizational alignment has to be a core competency of us internally to think globally. Otherwise it just won't happen. And I've been at organizations where it's, it's somewhat of an afterthought, but here at Fortin, we're really making that as part of our blueprint. It needs to be part of our DNA um, to look at people process around the world. Okay. That's fantastic. So it really isn't saying we're going to have our English expert on it three o'clock because that maximizes participation around the world your tv guide is 24 hours so you have your english speaker at you know noon and then you have your you know person in china at midnight u.s time but they're speaking in chinese to capture that market and so yep. that really is a identifying who in the company is your expert and how in aligning them with the topics. Definitely, yeah, yeah but that's it. And, and uh, it's a pretty simple formula, but it takes a lot of time and effort and dedication. Um, but uh, you know, the organizations that really live and breathe that see the benefits. Um, just simply translating something with a, with a random translation tool doesn't, doesn't hit the mark. Um, assuming that uh, uh, you know, Germany and Italy, we can have English content isn't always the right assumption. We, we need to have that specific targeted messaging in their local language um, because, again, these uh, precious lives are at stake. And the, the easier that we can serve up content at the right time, um, the better for us, uh, us as a whole, as a world, you know, as a, as a um, human population, if you will. Right. Yeah, no, I like the way you're looking at it because you're staying focused on the human lives. And you bring up translation. So you're creating, I understand with the, the live information, you've got to have the experts in the local area speaking the language that the people are going to listen to. But what about all that other content you're creating? Um, uh, how are you handling the development of that? Is it created in English and then translated or created different content or how are you going through through that process? Yeah, it's a great question. So for the efforts that are in the U.S. and uh, start off in the U.S., we, we create uh, in English and we leverage our uh, field marketing and, and our regional teams to uh, localize and to translate. Um, there are some areas, for example, webinars, um, where there's a, there's a lot of content being shared um, vo uh, verbally. Um, we, we use in, uh, some tools that uh, enable us to at least get the, the foundational localization and, and uh, translation there. Then we work to really refine um, that uh, manually uh, today. Um, you know, but but uh, this is an area that we have to grow in, uh, to be honest, Wendy. And, and it's a, I think it's a challenge area, but um, it's one of those that I have on my radar to really work through this year um, to find out um, what tools are out there to help. Um, you know, at Netgear, we kind of dabbed into a tool that where it learned uh, from us over time. So you can imagine after five to 10 years of using a localization tool powered with AI, um, it can learn your technical speak if, um, or specific, um, you know, no, no, some, sometimes words as they're translated one for one, 
um, they mean a whole different thing in another region. And right. you need to be able to pick up on that and learn that. And so I'm looking for some resources and, and some ability for us to be able to somewhat automate, have that human interaction. I definitely believe you have to have human uh, interaction there, but uh, we can do a better job of uh, looking to automate this to scale quicker. Yeah, it's interesting because you were talking about your field marketing uh, teams doing that now. Um, and how, what, I mean, uh, there was a interesting uh, podcast with Randy Roger earlier that I did, and she went through the same thing with their field marketing managers doing it. But, and she started to realize this isn't efficient in the lost time that they were doing. Is that one of their job responsibilities to do that? Or what happens when the translation comes in? Because I can imagine with the amount of content that you're talking about, it could be a lot. Yes, yes, exactly. It is one of their responsibilities, but a lot of times the, the regional teams, it's a one, one man or one woman team leading all aspects of marketing, you know? So, you know, it's an important uh, communication piece where um, I'm always, uh, you know, letting the team know, my team here based in the U.S., look, we're at Liberty. We have a team here. We have resources and, and agencies um, to do all of these activities in the regions where it's just one man or one woman. Uh, we have to be cognizant of that. So um, it's all about sharing um, and uh, learning from when we do localization, what works, what doesn't and helping us to, um, you know, uh, kind of learn from there. So that's why I'm looking for a tool and or an agency to, to really kickstart these efforts um, to enable us to go to market quicker. Um, but then also I, I'm looking for the opposite too. Um, there's a lot of great campaigns and in initiatives that have been, you know, kickstarted or, you know, initiated in some of the regions, um, Italy, France, uh, China's doing amazing for us. Um, but bringing that to the U S because, you know, we're a worldwide, uh, team. I want to also bring their ideas into the U S market, um, there's no reason why we should not. So that backwards translation too, is not always English to language. It's the, the, the native language to English um, as well. So, Right, which is a truly a globalized view because it's recognizing that you have experts all over the place. Yeah, there's a, I've got a bunch, you know, of course I've got an agency right here ready to work with you and give you some consulting advice on that. Um, and a couple of, we did a case study that we're just getting ready to launch about Rotary International, who was in the same situation of you as, as you know, translations and afterthought. Some was done from corporate, some was done in the field. There was no global management or how to do it. So it, it talks through the um, localization maturity model on how you start in a reactive phase and how you can grow and develop to, so you're truly a globalized agency. Um, so I can share that. I can share an early copy with you. And then I just, I have a book coming out right now that's called The Language of Global Marketing that goes more in depth into all these issues and how you, how you think about it. Perfect. So yeah, yeah, happy to share that with you. Because um, it's the campaigns, but uh, you know, mentioned software where we are um, making that movement into a software company. And the, even down to the UI, so the user interface of our software needs to be localized. And we yeah. can't just be assuming that English is the way. Um, and so those pieces, you know, as you add them all up, those incremental, you know, localization, you know, uh, optimizations add up to something so huge um, and beneficial. And sometimes that's the, um, you know, that's what keeps customers loyal. So as we're looking at churn and customer lifetime value, Sometimes, you know, it's the little things that make that big difference because it shows that you care. And if we truly want to empower the everyday hero, we absolutely need to uh, walk the walk and, and to be in our regional um, customer shoes and our partners. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way that you're thinking about it because all the research shows that even if people are bilingual, which many of your, you know, clients are highly educated, so even if they do speak English, they're going to want to be able to trust that they can get the information in their, their own language. Yep. And so, and there's all sorts of little tricks on, you know, where to look for the language switcher, what kind of format it would come in, the colors that you might be using. And so it's really, really, really good that you're thinking about this early on. So it's, it's nice to see that process. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hmm. So what do you think your biggest challenges are going to be in, I mean, you've got people, process, global, language, culture, you know, then plus all the, you know, the different marketing techniques. What do you, what do you think your biggest challenges are? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the uh, challenges is, is the unknown of where we are today in, in the worldwide landscape um, with COVID and, and what that uh, new normal is and how digital is playing a, an important role to, um, to every, all businesses around the world and especially to, for us. Um, you know, we've been challenged with bringing, uh, is having digital transformation be at the forefront of our strategies. And so our challenge there is looking at what are the trends? What are these um, digital tools that enable us and our customers and our partners implement, learn, execute, um, and continue to evolve? Um, you know, frankly, that's our challenge because um, we have to move with, um, with the time. And uh, COVID has really, you know, I feel like facilitated or served as a catalyst mm -hmm. for digital. Um, and, you know, maybe we're uh, in the position we're at now, maybe we were going to be here eventually in 2040, but now we're here. Um, and so it's forcing companies that uh, have been, you know, kind of successful pre-COVID it, and it's transforming internally. Um, but I think that's one of the challenges there. And the second one is, um, you know, to be honest, diversity and inclusion of our customers around the world and also our internal teams. Um, and you talked about it, you touched on it, different regions um, and uh, different cultures. We need to make sure that we're looking at that. Um, and that's a, a culture, you know, skin color, it's, it's a upbringing it's, and it's other beliefs as well. Um, and hiring, I think, the right leaders going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, do I, if we're going to be diving into Latin America, and that's part of our growth, do I hire somebody who, um, you know, has some experience in Latin America? And do I place them in Latin America? Um, place them in the U.S. And, and what does that look like in terms of continuing to grow our internal, um, our, our internal knowledge? And so I want to be able to get us there. And it's, it's a whole different mindset of, of thinking digital and diversity inclusion that um, is, is probably the biggest challenge. But as we continue to uncover and make success there, we will uh, really grow. That's fascinating to hear you talk about those two things because it's, you're right, if you can leverage those two things and the digital helps with the DEI and all the research shows that if you have an inclusive organization that you perform better. Yeah. If you have a global organization, you perform better. If you have a diverse and inclusive organization, you perform better. So your eye is on the right the right targets there. How about your salespeople? If they were used to going out and meeting uh, with customers face-to-face, -face, oftentimes that can be a really hard challenge because they're not as adept with the, the digital tools. How's that played out in your company? Um, so I would say it's, uh, um, it's been pretty, it's gone pretty well, uh, to be honest. And it goes back to, Fortiv has been really built on, um, the FBS, so that's the Fortive Business Solutions. And there's a whole organization focused on process and new tools for all of the Fortive subsidiaries or operating companies. Because of that, we, we've relied on that team to, to help us during um, times of transformation. And, um, and so their ability to, to foresee um, uh, events, trends, to, um, and, and be able to have a common foundational you know set of tools available to us at any given time um, is important and key and so um, to be honest uh, the transition has been you know not easy um, but it's been uh, I would say because of those those institutional pieces that are here um, it, um, it's been you know uh, there's a lot of synergies there and we've been able to adapt quickly um, and grow Okay, so it goes back to having the tools and then it sounds like the training and access to a resource where people can really get into. Yep, exactly. Now, not, not a lot of organizations do this, um, and especially globally. So I'm, next week, I'm actually going to be in a global training and it's going to take three days out of my time. Um, but to really dig deep into these tools and processes that we have in place, U.S. and then globally. Um, and how do, we, how do I bring all of that to my area here in uh, leadership and uh, continue to voice 
all of these tools that we have and ensure my team are following those um, because these are recipes for success. Um, all companies are based on, you know, kind of this rhyme and reason in this process. Uh, Fortif has been around for, for years and uh, they've built success off of these uh, drivers and we want to continue to leverage that. Every company does it. Disney, uh, I know it's a B2C, um, but Disney, if you look at their animations from the 1970s, 1980s, there's a YouTube video out there. Um, they use the same animation of the same characters circling in the same uh, directions um, still to this day, but it's just, it's either Snow White and Seven Doors, uh, they just put a different uh, character there and it's the same exact animation. So we almost need to take that and internally that we're using that same type of model. Wow, you are, you are fascinating to me. You, you know, just being able to step back, assess, and then apply it. It's really good. So I, I know you've had a lot of experience in global marketing. So now I want to jump to, you, you must have seen mistakes along the way. Yep. All right. So let's dig into some of those because right now I'm not seeing any. I'm really impressed and thinking about, ooh, how can I apply this to my company? But yeah, let's hear about some of the mistakes you've seen in, along the way. You know, so um, I would say, so I started off my career at Itachi, uh, Japanese-owned company. And one of my biggest mistakes there was being, being shy um, or not um, thrusting myself into the Japanese culture right away. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, adding son. So, you know, my Japanese counterpart called me Chris-san, you know, or Wendy-san. And I was reluctant to do that. Um, and I would say that was holding me back from really understanding the cultural shifts, the, the diversity that that brings. Um, because um, with that, I'm somewhat holding a barrier, right, of me being able to understand how to market to the Japanese culture. Um, and that's an aspect of it. They're big on respect, right? And even the way that they, that they talk, uh, make decisions, it's different than what we do here in some parts of the US. Very fast paced here, we make split decisions. Um, and uh, often maybe you know, wrong decisions without much, without much research. And some of the other cultures, they, they are in fact the opposite. So, um, you know, that is probably something I wish I would have done sooner um, because the more that you learn and really put yourself in the shoes and understand what those cultural differences are and truly, truly um, uh, uh, believe it and think about it as you're, as you're uh, working internally with your, with your teams, or creating these campaigns around the world, the better you'll be. Because um, mm -hmm. you gotta live and breathe it. You can't, uh, again, fake it. If you fake it and have a, a US-centric program and you try to just quick localize it and snap some you know, local imagery, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna right. be successful and you're gonna waste your time. You really have to put in the time and the dedication um, to understand and to include yourself and just to sit back and observe. So that was probably a mistake I made early on. Um, but those uh, um, learnings from Itachi have really enabled me to, to uh, you know, I think um, understand those cultural importances that uh, you gotta know um, and it's important. So you were talking about the training that you're doing and it really is global training about specific tools. And that's really good to meet people from around the world and train on something specific. Are you planning on doing any like peer diversity training? Um, so peer diversity in terms of, uh, uh, you know, understanding, you know, diverse uh, you know, ways of thinking and, and how do we use that? Or what, what do you mean by peer diversity? Yeah, um, how to accept other cultures or how to say Chris-san when you're talking to Japanese people or different ways of group thinking or relating or communicating. So more cultural training and acceptance. Or do you think that'll come from training on business processes and techniques and tactics and in um, processes? Yeah, so, you know, to be honest, Wendy, I, I did not think about uh, that aspect of a, of a training um, uh, and having that as a, as a, as a module, but uh, I should. I'm going to take that down as a note um, because that's important. Um, I think back to when uh, I started off as an intern, I joined an um, a, uh, organization called Inroads, um, and uh, it's for uh, kind of um, uh, for all, but it's, it's focused on minority um, you know, university students trying to get their jump into corporate America. 
they focused on that. But ever since then, I haven't uh, uh, thought about that or even helped to educate my team on that. Um, so that's definitely an area. You're right. Um, I need to be uh, looking at that because that's part of that diversity and inclusion um, that we sometimes lose touch of and we need to understand. Yeah. Yeah, I just recorded a podcast with a woman who specializes in that. And I've got a lot of connections if you're interested, but I can send you a link to the podcast because I liked how she framed thinking about it. Okay, that might give you If you're interested in listening to that. Yep. Yeah. Um, how did you get your start in global marketing? Um, so I started off in, uh, at Hitachi. Um, back in uh, 2005, um, and um, I, I started off in marketing communications. And um, Hitachi, I worked for Hitachi Data Systems, which, which made these mainframe data storage units the size of a, of a refrigerator um, to store data. Yeah. And so there it was, you know, really just about understanding what was marketing. Um, and it was very different right. from what I learned in, in my college education. I went to Santa Clara University. Um, so it's really yeah, understanding Japanese culture, uh, how decisions are made, but then are you know learning about the four P's that I learned in, in, in school, but then applying that. And um, you know, uh, so marketing communications. I quickly this was pre-social, um, so pre-Facebook, LinkedIn, blogs, forums, um, and um, uh, saw an interest in digital. And uh, you know, had a mentor, Jeremiah Aoyang. He's um, a, a, an industry analyst at the moment. Um, and so we dived into building a social uh, marketing strategy for Hitachi. And so you can imagine back in 2005, asking our CTO, who um, was a Japanese uh, CTO, to blog and to talk openly about Hitachi, that is, that is unheard of, right? right? That is a game changer. That's a cultural shift and a change for an organization like Hitachi that is very conservative um, and not quite that way. And we broke some of those barriers and we created a forum um, after we launched the blog, it was successful, created a community forum to allow our customers to talk to each other, which was again unheard of back in 2006. It was like, what, B2B, this space for Japanese company? Whoa, what are we doing? Um, we learned a lot and I learned a lot through that. And I learned the importance of understanding cultural um, uh, differences, similarities, and understanding when we need to make some change or when we um, uh, you know, digital is ever evolving and how to incorporate digital into those spaces and how to make the right decisions to, yeah, we should change this. We should tweak. We should try this versus no, we should not. This is against the, uh, you know, this is not going to, this is going to do more harm than good. So that's where I got my start. Um, and then I continued to work through the customer facing the channel partner, channel marketing and enablement. Um, so I was at Hitachi for nine years uh, or so. Um, then I went over to VMware, um, where, you know, really understood and, and tried to get a grasp of um, software. And that was huge uh, uh, for me. And that was a worldwide role as well. Um, and then uh, Netgear, I was there most recently for five years. And that was a great um, opportunity because uh, when I joined Netgear, marketing was not a huge focus of their overall strategy. So, um, and they were by far a worldwide company, um, strong presence in EMEA and in APAC and and most times they were our best regions performing when the U.S. was down in the market. So we doubled down in those areas. Um, and so that taught me a lot about B2C um, and uh, also B2B, but a lot about B2C and how, you know, the smallest um, graphic, the smallest uh, word can make a heap of a difference when it comes down to conversion rates um, on digital. And, and it's, it's just amazing that the more time you put, the better the results. Um, and so now I'm bringing all of that to, Flukal Solutions at Fortif, and I'm extremely excited about the outlook that we have. So a lot of people have some early childhood experience, like they speak another language or they lived another country or something that get, make them more open to global marketing or global business. I mean, do you have anything in your background or you just went to college and ended up at a, a Japanese company and that's what opened your eyes? Yeah, so I would say I, I do. Um, so I, so my, both, both of my uh, um, mom and my dad and my family heritage is from Mexico. Um, and, and so I'm uh, Mexican. Um, and I am probably, myself and my sister are probably the, the two out of a family of, I don't know, 50 plus who do not speak Spanish. Um, and my, my mom is fluent in Spanish and, and my dad knows uh, some. Um, 
I would say that is probably the reason why I'm most attuned to culture because I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't pick up Spanish and now I know uh, a bit more. Um, my wife mm-hmm. um, is also Mexican and she speaks fluent Spanish. I'm learning a lot from her. But the fact that I didn't um, necessarily pick up Spanish, my native language, has made me more curious um, about my own and I've definitely educated myself, but then about the rest of the world and knowing that, you know, there's a lot to be learned um, and there's some, you know, really some amazing pieces to pick up there. So I would say at an early, at an early time, I guess, international marketing was a focus for me because I just loved it. It almost, the fact that I didn't learn it made me more interested in it. Um, so that was a catalyst uh, and it serves to be a catalyst um, uh, for sure. And, and uh, in terms of what's piquing my interest. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I do, I do think that's one really hard thing for children of Spanish speakers that grow up in the U S I'm like, just speak at home, let your yes. kids learn it, give them some education about how to write. Cause it's such an advantage to be bilingual. Yet, yeah. On the other hand, you do have the advantage of coming from a family where you learn two different cultures, one at home and then one at school. Um, right. so you're more open to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's nice having that diverse, uh, just upbringing because, you know, when I travel around the world, I love traveling. We talked about food and, and wine, you know, in the beginning, yeah. um, you know, I like to go to the tourist areas. I, I do, but I also like going to where it's non-touristy off the beaten path. My wife and I will really, you know, enjoy that in terms of, um, uh, uh understanding the cultures. We recently went to the Mafia coast and sure there's a lot of touristy things to do, but we, you know, took a, um, a day trip and we went to one of the surrounding cities and just sat like a local, right? We wanted to do those local things. And, you know, so I think that, um, you know, it, it's really part of who I am. Um, and uh, I really try to bring that out into work, um, work hard, play hard, but, uh, you know, really understand um, that and bring that into, into work life. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I, I lived in Mexico City for first and second grade. So I went to half a day in English and half a day in Spanish for school. So that gave me the ear for Spanish. Now, you know, I've gotten weak at it because I'm not using it every day, but I still love it. <laughs> well, we'll learn together for sure. <laughs> Pardon? We'll, we'll learn together. We'll, we'll take some uh, joint classes and maybe our next podcast will be in uh, Spanish. <laughs> ah, muy bien. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, this question's coming. What's your favorite foreign word? I would say... So hola probably is, is probably my favorite, but I would say konnichiwa, um, oh. second. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I think there's some other uh, Japanese words that, uh, um, you know, are, are there, but konnichiwa is probably one of those that's, uh, you know, uh, I, I like. Um, and konnichiwa is hola or yes, hello exactly. in Japanese. Yeah. yeah. So it's really, you know, hello. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I did, uh, there's a Korean um, kansamida, which is thank you as well. So, uh, and I studied uh, Taekwondo for majority of my life. And um, at one point, um, uh, I, you know, I was able to lead a whole class, um, series of classes, but for students, all in Korean. Um, so kansamida was, was one of those that, you know, thank you. Um, and, you know, I guess it's more the proper words. Hello, thank you. Um, because you can't say that enough when you're meeting people that you don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. That is such a good point. Hello, thank you, and excuse me seem to be yes. the three words you need to know in any language if you're going to visit a country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How about a very rewarding um, or unusual cross-cultural experience that you've had in all your travels for work? Um, let's see. So um, I would say it, it has to be in in some of the um in in japan so uh traveled to japan both personally but also professionally um and i would say you know um in work environments um, i'm somewhat more animated um and and um even when it came down to making key business decisions um or presenting um the sometimes in the japanese culture they don't react right away and they're, they're maybe would like to huddle up on their own, think about the decision at hand, come back. And so I think it was somewhat um, not alarming, but very educational is that, you know, you ask for questions and there's no questions. Um, they just nod their head. And that form is uh, not a form of they weren't listening. It doesn't mean that 
It doesn't mean they're not interested. It doesn't mean what you said is not a great strategy or a great success. Um, it's in fact more of a respect of they don't want to come out and right away start feedback or show um, one emotion or the other um, because out of a respect, they're very much a little bit more reserved. And so when they came back the next day, by far they had some great things to say or they had some you know um, other opportunities or other feedback. And I thought that was a key moment for me because um, it really enabled me to think about, hey, I need to slow down a little bit and not expect an immediate jerk reaction or immediate reaction on what I'm saying. I need to let some time. So somewhat of that uh, internal thinking of me uh, and, and, and allowing. So, you know, that, that then fed into when I'm in conversations with some of the other regions, I don't need to jump in right away. Um, I can listen and observe and um, give the team an opportunity to speak and to talk before I say something, because I may, you know, not understand the full scenario. Um, so I think it's, it's really that time and um, slowing things down was a lesson in itself. Um, yeah. I, went home, I went back to my hotel thinking, oh, did, did I not touch on the right topics? Did, you know, does something happen? Um, and uh, so, but it's that cultural shift. So now working with teams uh, here in the U.S. And, and globally, you know, taking a step back and, and really slowing things down uh, sometimes can um, mitigate risk and save time. That's fantastic. That is such a good learning experience. And, and so you have to remind yourself not to take it internally or worry, but to wait. And if you know that, it really helps. Yeah. What, um, we're, we're wrapping up now because I, I go another half an hour of asking you questions. What recommendations might you have for listeners that want to operate or be successful in the global business world? Yeah, great question. So I would say any opportunity that uh, any of the listeners have to, um, to relocate if, if uh, they're really, truly, you know, wanting to dive into international experience, I would encourage. Um, and if their um, opportunity at their current company is offering that, you know, take that on um, because there, there's nothing better than living and breathing um, in a different uh, country um, and uh, operating in that sense, learning the language, seeing the gestures firsthand um, and observing and walking around. That is, uh, you know, important. Um, sometimes there's immersion uh, uh, trips and, and study abroad in, at universities hugely important. My wife did it and she is one of her best uh, learning opportunities um, at the, at her university. I didn't get that opportunity. So it's more of, please go do it. This is something I didn't get to do. So it's more <laughs> of that. Um, I would say there's that. And then the, the second piece is, I would say be, you know, it, it's somewhat of being transparent, being humble um, when we're mm. talking and when we have some U.S. centric or U.S. teams driving other regions, um, really, um, allowing time for your regional counterparts or your regional team members to um, contribute to the conversation. So that open collaboration and communication is important. Slowing down. If you're talking to some other regions where English is not the first language, which I probably should have done in this podcast, uh, considering you have a worldwide audience, um, but speaking slower because um, sometimes we, we overestimate or underestimate how fast we talk and, um, and uh, sometimes that um, creates some barriers. So slow down the conversation. It helps yourself too. Um, sometimes we just like to, if we're talking about something, slow down, think, allow time for, um, for reflection uh, is important. So those are the two you know, key uh, um, things that I would say that I've learned and that I would encourage everybody to, to think about uh, daily. That's fantastic advice. I love it. So if people want to reach out to you and learn more, where can they go? Yeah, so I am on Twitter, um, and uh, it's Chris underscore Salazar, so C-H-R-I-S-S-A-L-A-Z-A-R. I'm pretty active there. Um, also, I'm on, I'm on uh, Clubhouse, so Wendy, sounds like you've heard of that. We'll, we'll uh, join there for some audio, audio talks. Um, LinkedIn as well, you can look me up, uh, Chris Salazar, and it's, um, it's uh, so I-N slash C-A Salazar. Um, there as well. So those are my uh, kind of two most active platforms that uh, anybody can reach me at. And on Clubhouse, you're, uh, you're Chris Salazar? 
Yes, that's right. Chris, uh, Chris underscore Salazar. So I got the uh, same, same username. Um, and I'm on there. That's, oh, that's a whole topic in itself, Lindy. Uh, it so. sure is. But you know, I host a room every Friday morning at 9am East Coast time. Um, and this coming Friday is on um, networking and opportunities. Love to have you in as a comad. Oh, perfect. Yes, I will definitely, I'm going to go follow you right after this, and then um, I'll be joining that. Okay, and I'll add you on as a presenter moderator. Perfect. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, this has been a very inspiring and impressive uh, talk with Chris for me. I hope you learned as much as I did. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, if you know somebody that might benefit from learning about how to go global when you've already got some markets that are operating there, forward this on to them. Um, it'll give them some suggestions on how to think about it. Um, we're always looking for new guests and new people in the audience. So you can always find me at, uh, on LinkedIn at Wendy Pease or on my website, wendypease.com. Thanks so much. Come back again next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.